Today, we're going to do something a little different. I hope this episode is going to be jam-packed for you and is really going to dive into a tangible tip that you can take and you can apply for your family. One question I often get asked from parents is, how do I reduce challenging behaviors? Maybe that's aggression. Maybe that's tantrums. Maybe that's even meltdowns, which tantrums and meltdowns are different things. Maybe that also is grabbing toys or constantly getting up at dinner. Whatever it is, is this thing that is interfering for you. Today, we're going to talk about how to navigate this. And the place we need to start is to understand the function of the behavior. So a lot of times when parents are asking me and working with me in clinical practice or they're asking me on social media, they want that quick fix. I understand. You you might be one of these parents where you're like, I want to get to the bottom of it. Tell me what to do. I'm willing to do anything. And here's the reason that a quick fix doesn't work. A quick fix is often saying, okay, for the majority of people, does this, you know, approach work? And it does for the majority, but There are so many unique differences that we actually want to focus on what is going to work for your child. And being willing to collect the data first is how we are going to know what is actually going to reduce the behaviors that you want to see less of. And so it's less about quick fixes and it's truly about trying to understand your child. The other thing to keep in mind is a lot of times on social media we'll see these quick fixes, but it is important to also consider were these fixes developed for neurodivergent children, particularly autistic children, or is it one of these things that generally works on neurotypical children, but it might not exactly work for your child? There's nothing faulty with your child. There's nothing wrong with your child. We just have to understand, again, what that function of the behavior is. Because what I want you to go into this episode and have this mindset as you're listening is that your child's challenging behaviors are communicative. They have a purpose. They have a function. And we need to figure out what they are trying to communicate. That is going to be the most effective path. So this episode is going to give you tips and strategies where you actually need to pay attention to your child's behaviors and what is going on around it before and after, before we're ever going to be able to do the actual intervention of the behavior. So you might be like, Taylor, that's not fixing the problem. It's kind of this slow approach so that you can speed up. You could jump into strategy after strategy, but you could be doing that a really long time. This is going to work if you are willing to actually figure out what your child is trying to communicate. So this episode, we're going to discuss the ABCs of behavior and the importance of tracking to understand what happens before and after the situation you're identifying as challenging or problematic. We will also talk about then how you can use these data then to start to intervene. All right, let's go ahead and dive in. I'm Dr. Tay, a licensed child psychologist and parental mindset coach specializing in autism. I have supported hundreds of autistic children and their families and have been in the autism field for over a decade. I'm the host of Evolve, the podcast where we have real conversations that are designed for autism parents just like you. 
Each week, we will discuss topics that directly impact your life, from providing psychoeducation about autism and neurodiversity to talking about your personal growth, well-being, and evolution as a parent. We dive into it all. Just keep in mind, nothing shared on this podcast is clinical advice, and you should consult with a medical or mental health provider if you need support. Now, let's get to talking about the ABCs. These ABCs are different than when you hear ABCs, you're like, yeah, let's teach my child the alphabet. Not what we're going to be doing today. These ABCs are for you as the parent. So let's talk about what the ABCs are. The B, I want to start there because I think this is often easiest to think about. The B is behavior. The A, which comes before the B, is the antecedent. And this is also the thing that comes before the behavior, the antecedent. What is happening? What's kind of triggering it? What's cueing it? What is that thing that directly precedes the behavior? That is really, really informative. Then we have the C. Notice the C comes after the B. Similarly, the consequence comes after the behavior. Now, you might hear the word consequence and you might be like, I'm out, I'm out, Taylor. I am not doing quote unquote consequences with my child that if you don't do this, then you lose this. Yes, that is a type of consequence, but that's not exactly what I'm talking about here. Our daily lives, even as adults, are centered around ABCs. And the key here is trying to understand them and actually apply them for your child. What the consequence is, is it is looking at what happens right after that behavior. The consequence is either what's going to make the behavior more likely to happen again in the future or less likely to happen again in the future. And consequences can vary. Consequences don't have a negative connotation. A consequence, we're going to dive into this, could be giving your child what they're actually asking for. That is a consequence. And we think about then how giving your child what they're actually asking for is that increasing or decreasing the likelihood that the behavior is appearing. And that becomes important because if you don't want the behavior, if it's a challenging behavior, we actually want to be reducing the behavior itself. So again, antecedent behavior consequence, A, B, C, and think about the order of the A, B, Cs. The A comes before the B, just like the antecedent comes before the behavior, and the C comes after the B, just like the consequence comes after the behavior. So this happens naturally. Whether or not you are tracking it, this is happening. So keep that in mind. Sometimes parents are like, well, I just don't have the bandwidth to track it, like, sorry, this isn't going to work. And it is. I'm going to warn you, this approach, again, it's a slow start to speed up. It's not going to be your instantaneous solution. But I'm telling you, investing the couple, usually I say about two weeks of tracking, where you are literally tracking what is happening in these situations becomes really important. And it really ultimately gets you your desired result sooner. But even if you choose not to track it, this is still happening. It's not like all of a sudden because you're tracking it, that's when it starts happening. No, it occurs. Think of your child. Think about what happened right before and what happened right after. There's always something that happens before and there's always something that happens right after. And so when I say about tracking it, you want to create a little notebook or a little table and you're basically going to think about when that B happens, when the behavior happens. So Let's say that you want to track meltdowns in your autistic child. When that behavior happens, that's going to be what I call a doorbell of awareness. That's going to be your cue to be like, 
okay, let me take a moment right now. What happened right before this happened? I asked my son to come sit down at the table. That's the antecedent. What happened right before? Asked him to come sit at the table. He just dropped down right into a meltdown. And you might be saying, Taylor, there's nothing predictable happening there. There's nothing to track. Still track it. Write down exactly what happened before that behavior occurred. Then you're going to also think about what happened after or even during that behavior, right? The meltdown. What were you doing? Were you saying, Johnny, I need you to stop. I need you to calm down. Calm down right now. Or were you running around being like, okay, he doesn't want this food. I'm going to go get him his favorite thing. I'll give you a little sneak peek. Giving him his favorite thing is going to make it more likely that that meltdown happens again in the future. And it could be that him not getting his food and having things just right is so overstimulating for him because it's not what he expected that it does cause that meltdown. So I want you to start tracking it. You are going to do this for a good one to two weeks of just writing it down. You can jot it on your phone. You can have a notebook. You might be saying, okay, Taylor, I could just pay attention. I don't need to write it down. Trust me, you need to write it down because what you're going to start to notice is patterns that are happening. Is there something that is consistently cueing it? Another example is aggression. So say your daughter is constantly grabbing your other child, right? Your autistic daughter is grabbing. And you might be like, where is this coming from? It feels like it's out of the blue. And a lot of times I hear this from parents. No, 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 Taylor. I promise this is out of the blue. And this is what we do in therapy together. Of course, this isn't clinical advice. I can't tailor it to your child, but I'm providing you what's called psychoeducational material, meaning I'm teaching you about these concepts so you can go apply it. But in one-on-one therapy, we literally work on this. And I have parents bring the tracking into me and I start looking and I'm like, do you see this consistent thing? And when you start to notice that, then we know where to intervene. So it could seem like your daughter is out of the blue, grabbing her siblings, pinching her siblings, pulling her siblings' hair. And you're like, I don't understand what's going on. But then you start to track it. And you see that every single time that she starts grabbing, one of them starts yelling or crying. And it might not be every single time, but you might be like, oh, most of the times, a couple times the baby cried. Oh, that's what happened right before baby cried. And that you might just be like, yep, babies cry. Yep, she she's grabbing people, right? Those aren't connected. But if you start to see every time the baby cries that your daughter is grabbing either the baby or another one of your children, it could be overstimulating, right? That that is the cueing and that is her way of communicating she wants it to stop. And so when you track in this way, it can start to help you identify patterns. Other patterns you might be identifying is things like time of day or certain parts of the day or certain parts of the routine. Or you might start to be like, wow, it's every time we transition, I've noticed this. And maybe you didn't notice that about your child before. So that's why tracking becomes so, so important. Then you're going to do that. You're going to start to notice patterns. The other thing then is on the consequence side. Let's talk about that. What do I mean again by consequences? Consequence is just what happens after the behavior, and it's reinforcing the behavior, meaning it's either making it more likely to happen or it could be making it less likely to happen. Let's think of an example here. Say that your child, every time they want something, they just are screaming, 
They're communicating through screaming, even though you're like, Taylor, this is so frustrating. My child does have the word for help or the sign for help or is able to communicate, but every time they need help, they just sit there and scream. So say they're screaming in the kitchen, you hear them, you walk over, you grab what they want on the shelf because you have superpowers, you can read their minds and y'all, this, this happens all the time, right? Parents just know what their kids want. It's an intuitive sense, which is beautiful. We're not trying to take that away, but think about it. You grab what they want off the shelf. That's the consequence, you grabbing what they want off the shelf. Again, keep in mind, consequence doesn't mean it's a negative thing. We often think of consequence as time out. That's a form of a consequence. It is not consequence as a whole. So you grabbing what they want off the shelf, they get it, they get to eat it. Well, guess what? That behavior of them screaming is reinforced. By you giving them what they want, it makes it more likely for that behavior to happen again in the future because it's effective. They're getting actually what they want. Why would they switch their behavior in order to still get that thing? They figured out something that works, so they're gonna keep on that. So you also wanna track like what happens right after and what is your response to this? Really, that's the thing to be thinking of when you're tracking. Tracking consistently, you start to notice natural patterns. I wanna jump in real quick before we talk about how we then use this data once you do notice the patterns and talk about this idea of what I've seen in the autistic community. I have seen posts in the autistic community that talk about how this type of approach isn't ideal. It can be harmful. And where that's connected to is actually ABA, Applied Behavior Analysis. ABA does what's called FBA's Functional Behavioral Analysis, where they're actually analyzing the child's behavior, which is based on ABCs. But ABCs aren't just used in ABA. They are literally used in every single intervention approach, even if you don't have an autistic child. And also, they naturally occur. And so here's the thing with this, is there can be this misperception that ABCs are attached to ABA. I know so many acronyms, right? I find that in the autism world generally. But these are just behavioral principles. This is how humans function. Like I said, regardless if you're tracking it, it is going on. Again, your kid just wanted something simple off the shelf. You're giving it to them. And that is going to happen whether you track it or not. Now, one of the concerns with ABA and also like these ABCs is that often we see the consequence be like a food reward and that can be problematic. Also, commonly in ABA, if your child is having a meltdown, what they would say is quote unquote the intervention at the consequence level is to ignore your child's tantrum. You won't ever hear that from me. We are going to be supporting your child, validating your child, helping your child to develop the skills in order to be able to communicate in a way that's gonna get them what they want. We're working one-on-one -on -one in a capacity together. We might be working on something like helping them learn how to use sounds to get what they want in a very supportive and naturalistic way, but we also are gonna teach other forms of communication. So it's not, adherence to neurotypical standards, but it is helping them to actually get what they want. Because the challenge becomes you have superpowers, you can predict what they want when they scream, but they go to school and the teacher might not be able to predict. And so that initial scream then, then they start to become dysregulated because they're like, no one's responding to me. I'm not getting what I want. Yeah, 
your kid is going to be pissed off. I'm pissed off if everyone's ignoring me. You're probably pissed off if everyone's ignoring you, right? We don't like to be ignored. So that's one of the concerns with ABA is that it's teaching to ignore the behavior. That's not what this is about. The other thing is food rewards. I got off on a little tangent there, but food rewards. I am not a huge proponent of food rewards kind of broadly. I think it shifts the relationship with food. And when we think from a broad psychology perspective and their development, and their relationship with food is really important. And we don't want to start at a young age using food as a consistent reward. But here's the thing. The reward doesn't have to be some big elaborate thing. In the early intervention model that I do, the reward simply is things like saying, yay, like if they do something or it could be a high five. But more often than not, the reward is just getting them what they want. They want cookies off the shelf and you're willing to give them cookies or they need their milk, and you're giving them what they want. That's the reward. The reward is very naturalistic. Recap, ABCs, antecedent behavior consequence. What happens right before that behavior? We're understanding it, we're identifying it, and what happens right after? How are you as the parent actually responding? When we consistently track, we start to know patterns. And then once you notice those patterns, then you can start to think about what do I need to shift? For example, if you notice that it's happening during transitions, you might start adding in warnings ahead of time, or you might use visual cues in order to help them transition more seamlessly or something like a timer. Actually, next week's episode is going to be with Molly. She's an autism consultant. We're going to talk about all things visual supports. So keep that in mind, but it might be adding in some additional supports where you're giving them more preparation and helping them to transition and really understand. It also could be, for example, certain times a day, as your child starts to get hungry, you see an increase in this behavior or tired, and it might start to be, one, you're aware of this now, right? And so you can be more mindful of it, but you also might start to be like, ooh, I need to start feeding my daughter a little earlier so that she isn't feeling really hungry, and then hunger makes us more dysregulated. So it's things like that where you're starting to shift the environment or shift what's happening around it. Other things might be if like you're seeing aggression, for example, and it is the example where I said the baby's crying, obviously a baby's going to cry by no means. I'm saying this like lightheartedly and in a joking way, but you're not going to get rid of the baby, right? And you can't tell the baby to be quiet, but you might look at other ways that your child can regulate themselves. So the aggression actually might be regulatory and communicative. They're trying to say, I don't like this, mom. Make this stop. Or it also could be like, I'm so overstimulated right now, I need to get that out. So maybe you're giving them something like a sensory toy or you're saying, hey, why don't you go take a break and swing in your sensory swing? Things like that. Fidgets, Fidgets was the word I was looking for, giving them fidgets, all of that. Sometimes oral fixation, being able to chew on something. There's different ways once you start to identify what the problem is, then we can start to think about how can we shift the environment and also then how can we help them to regulate. Then on the consequence side of this, and I talked about this with a little bit of the controversy. Yes, you can use food as a reward, but that's not what you're, if you work with me one-on-one, that's not what I'm going to be recommending for the most part. There are some exceptions to that, but for the most part, and we definitely aren't ignoring 
their tantrum, right? We're going to try to figure out from the antecedent side what's happening before the behavior, their tantrum is them trying to communicate. And so thinking ahead of time too is how can we start to give them other language? So an example of this is I do have a child right now that I'm working with that does have a little bit of aggression and grabbing. And so it's just saying, no, gentle hands. And then we're modeling the help sign. I started to do it, but you guys can see me live. So this is help but in the podcast. You guys can't see me, but you might model the help sign. And then we actually just create some space for the child. Also, like I said, giving some like sensory regulation things can be helpful as well. So sometimes you're modeling new behaviors, you're supporting new behaviors. But what the consequence side is also saying is your reaction or the way that what you're doing, is it making the behavior, that challenging behavior, more or less likely to happen again in the future? And so if we are giving them what they want when they scream, that's gonna increase the likelihood of the behavior because they're actually getting what they desire. They think that their communication bid of screaming is effective. And so you might instead get down on their level and say, okay, I think you want something. Let's find it together. And you might pick them up and you start to notice that they're regulating. You're like, okay, what do we want? And you might then give them choices. That's another example is maybe you do know what they want. You know they want the Cheez-Its, right? That's their favorite is the Cheez-Its. But then you might give them choices. Do you want this or this? And so then what happens is you're adding another layer into this where they're having to communicate what they actually want and you can reinforce that. And so it's actually the choice we're reinforcing, not the screaming behavior. And again, there's a lot of nuances to this. Sometimes for some kids, like kids get really more dysregulated when you do that. You can also say things like, okay, I want you to use your words or point to what you want. If those are consistent communication strategies that they have, don't expect that they're going to use a new developing skill in these moments, right? We want to use things that they consistently do, but if you can prompt them and then you're waiting until they're using that, or you can even just say, I know you really want something right now and you have some big emotions. We're just going to take a few deep breaths. And then after those deep breaths, you can say, okay, what do you want? So thinking about though, is whatever their initial behavior is, are you actually giving them what they want? Another example of this, just to talk about, so sometimes you literally cannot give them what they want. So giving them what they want is a really, really helpful consequence. They are motivated. And so we want to think about then if they're really motivated, we are able to give them what they want, then what behavior do we want to reinforce? We don't want to reinforce the screaming or the tantrum. We want to reinforce some other communication bit. But say you're in Target and they really want the new the new car, right? And they drop to the ground. They're so, so upset about that, but you can't give them what they want, right? It it just is not possible. But sometimes your reactions can also be consequences. Are they reinforcing that behavior or are they decreasing the likelihood of that behavior? And so, for example, like you saying, stop crying right now. You're not getting the toy. And you as a parent, we talked about dysregulation in episode two and three. So if you have a lot of challenges with dysregulation, highly recommend going back to that episode. But you might be dysregulated too. And it's like, just stop. That 
telling them to stop, you might be like, oh, that's going to decrease the behavior. More often than not, it doesn't decrease the behavior. It actually increases the behavior because they're getting your attention. Children love attention. They'll take any attention they get. They prefer positive attention, but they will definitely accept negative attention. And so instead, maybe one way is like, one, you can do a calming strategy together, maybe. And If you feel down for this, I've seen parents do this before and I applaud parents. Maybe you just sit down and target and say, I'm going to give you a big bear hug right now. It's okay to be upset and help them to regulate. That's an example of something that you might do that's not really going to reinforce the behavior per se, but is also supportive of them in that moment and helping them to regulate. But you also then might give what we call a replacement behavior, which is some of the examples I've been saying of like, okay, listen, I know you really want that truck. I understand Let's start a list together where we're writing down desired things. And that might be helpful. So you're giving them a replacement behavior instead of screaming. And you can start modeling when you go in, like ahead of the time, before you go into the Target, say, okay, today we are shopping for groceries. And you can even say, real quick, here's an example. This is the antecedent. Today we are shopping for groceries when we go into Target. And then say that, It's not in the budget for them to get a toy. You don't want them to get a toy. Whatever your reasons as a parent. You can also use, if we are able to do X, Y, and Z when we're grocery shopping and give them clear tangibles, we're able to stay next to mom or we're able to stay seated in the cart, give them something really clear. Then we can walk down the toy aisle after. Like first then. First, we're going to sit in our seats then we can walk down the toy aisle. Then you might need to remind them, when we walk down the toy aisle though, we're not buying anything right now. We're just looking and we're gonna start our list. Remember our list? We'll get our list out and have a big wish list of what you want for your birthday, that type of thing. Now, of course, if you know every single time that they walk down the toy aisle, that creates a lot of resistance That's the antecedent. You know that the toy aisle is the trigger. And so you might be like, we're just not going down the toy aisle. And maybe you even potentially, we have to find a balance here. You don't want to like over accommodate, but maybe it's like, do I really need to go to Target or should we just go to whatever your local grocery store is for groceries? So then it's less tempting. But if you know they consistently have a meltdown in the toy aisle, then you wouldn't suggest this. But if you notice what I'm doing is initially we are explaining it to them. That's the antecedent. The behavior, the desired behavior, instead of the challenging behavior, now we're telling them what the desired behavior is, sitting in the cart, and then walking down the toy aisle is the consequence. That's what's going to reinforce the likelihood or increase the likelihood that they're going to stay seated in the cart. Now, if you notice, though, you're also kind of extending this out a little bit. In terms of going down the toy aisle, some of it is you might be anticipating, okay, they're going to want something, so we have the list. That's the antecedent, right? So in the first example I talked about, the list was the consequence. But then you can start using things that are predictably working and start giving preparation, which is the antecedent, 
The behavior is you guys are walking down the toy aisle looking and the consequences, they get to write it on the list. So that just is kind of an example. I know this is complicated. This is something that I work one-on-one with families on all the time. So my hope of this episode is it gives you a general sense. The biggest place I will tell you to start is start at the level where you're actually tracking the data. Start noticing patterns, writing those down and looking. Now, if you need more support, this is absolutely where you can work with a therapist, whether that's a mental health therapist like myself as a psychologist that falls under the mental health realm, or you can also work with an occupational therapist on this as well. But this is something that in my clinical work, I support families with all the time, and I choose to use more of a whole family approach. So you guys have heard me say whole family approach on this podcast before. It was in the intro even. What do I mean by that? So say, for example, you're presenting to me and maybe you heard this episode and you're like, Taylor, I started tracking, but I'm really lost. I'm not seeing patterns in the data or I do see patterns in the data, but I can't figure out what the appropriate interventions are in order to start to shift that behavior. And you're like, so I need help. Typical like child psychologist or mental health therapist or even occupational therapist is going to be like, okay, let's just dive into ABCs. Let's start working on interventions. And that is so effective and absolutely part of what I do. But that's not the whole part of what I do. I find it is also really, really important to support the entire family system. So we might start then us sitting together, you and I, and I'm like asking you, how do you feel about this? What might be some barriers for you? And maybe after a really rough week, you come to session, you are exhausted. You're like, Taylor, this isn't working. Some of what we might talk about is not like, how do we make it work? It's like, how can I support you in this moment? Because if you're fried, as a parent, you're not going to be able to implement all these tools and strategies. And so this is what I mean by the whole family approach is I am here to support you as a parent just as much as I'm here to support your child. So I started this when I started my private practice, which was in June of 2022. But even as I started to work through private practice, I started incorporating more and more approaches that supported the whole family system. And it was very different from how I was trained, but I have found this incredibly beneficial. And I I just love what I do. It was, you know, a turning point just real quick before this, I was on internship at Duke University Medical Center. Internship is like residency. And I had to do a family therapy rotation and that started to open my eyes up. And And then I started to really let it evolve. And with it being my private practice, I can do what I want. That's the really cool thing. And I saw such a need. Let me give you another example of the whole family approach. So you're doing ABCs, you're doing this approach and you're like, okay, like he keeps doing this. What do I do? And on live video, you guys can see I'm pretending to text, but again, I don't know why I keep, my brain keeps forgetting right now that this is a podcast recording, but you literally can text me in the moment. Right before actually I hopped on this live, I got a text from a parent that was asking without going, of course, I can't go into too many details, but it was about the mom's child's anxiety and what the mom's reactions were to it, what the child's reactions were to it. And they were kind of at a stuck point and I was able to coach the mom through this over text. And so this is an example is then you don't have to wait till the next week with me and be like, oh yeah, this thing happened. 
you might not even remember. Or I find a lot of times parents are like writing down all these examples and we spend so much time in session just talking about what happened in the week versus really moving forward. So this whole family approach, I love it. I am passionate about it. I am seeing it work like incredibly. Parents are feeling seen and heard in this process, which is a super high value to me. And we often are making progress. I shouldn't even say we often. So far, every family I've worked with in this way has made progress so much faster. We're seeing a lot of momentum. So that's an example of how I personally do it. I, in the show notes, have linked my website if you are interested in talking about any of my services and the support that I provide. I'd be happy to chat about it. But generally speaking, if you listen to this episode and you're like, this was great information, I'm just really stuck or you're really trying it and it's not working for your child, don't be afraid to recruit in people that can support you, you know, that really understand these concepts and that can talk specifically about your child and help you problem solve the nuances. All right, y'all, that is a wrap for this week's episode. So we talked all about the ABCs of behavior, the antecedents, the behaviors, and the consequences, and how by tracking this information consistently over a week to two weeks, you can start to see patterns in your child's behavior. One thing I didn't say during the episode, you might have to track longer if it's a, a behavior that's of rare occurrence. Maybe it happens every once in a while, but you need a good amount of data, but then you can start to take that data analyze it, find common patterns, and then start to shift the antecedent, shift the environment, shift the cueing, all of that, as well as your reactions and your responses to your child's behavior. And that can start to create where you see more of the behaviors you want to see and less of these challenging behaviors. The biggest thing I want you to keep in mind through all of this, though, is your child's challenging behaviors. They are communicative. They are functional. They are trying to let you know know what they want. And it's super important that we actually listen. We help them to feel seen and heard in this process. And a lot of that comes from starting to track. The tracking can be cumbersome, but I promise you it's going to be worth it. And you're going to actually learn how to understand your child at an even deeper level. All right, y'all. That's a wrap. Thank you so much for being here and thank you for listening. If you find yourself listening to these episodes and finding value, come join the Evolve Facebook group. Each week I record podcast episodes live in that community and host a Q&A after each episode. You get access to engage with me, plus you can connect with other like-minded autism parents. It is a community designed for you to feel seen, heard, and supported as a parent of an autistic child and introduces you to my whole family approach. The group is linked in the show notes. I will be back next week with another real conversation about all things autism and your family life. Be sure to hit the plus or follow button in the podcast platform that you are listening to right now. This will notify you when the next episode is live. Catch you all later.